This is Matthew Putman, and welcome to Utility Function. Got to sit down with one of my mentors today, Beth Comstock. And during this interview, I realized, of course, that she isn't just my mentor, but to an entire generation of entrepreneurs and leaders. Beth was the vice chair of General Electric. She sits on the board of Nike. She has run the entertainment group at General Electric, the lighting group, and been involved with so many organizations of change throughout the world. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I think it goes without saying how much I appreciate you coming here. Oh, it's, happy to do this. It's the second time you've done this for Nanotronics, and uh, I'm, you know, you've, I've, I've realized that it's not. That I'm not that special. That you have given me a lot of ideas and helped me. But as I look through what you've done, I realize this is what you do. You're kind of a, a mentor to a lot of people and have been for a long time. Is that something you considered, like a part of a job, or is it more of a mission in life? Is it- it's a good way to put. It. I, I guess I haven't really thought that of myself, but I, um, I'm just attracted to people who are trying to make things better, and um, and if I can help. I offer some advice. Um, I've been around a while, so that helps. I think mentor also means older, wiser uh, in some way. And so I think just I'm attracted to people who take on these big, hairy missions that are really difficult. And I felt I had that path in a company. And so I'm just attracted to people like you who take on these things that seem like, how are you ever going to do that? And you do it. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering, however... We will as well. So I was like, so I need to turn to you for these things. Uh, I think of you as being somebody that's been involved with technology. In fact, you know, you're more, most well known, I think, for all of the different roles and all of the, uh, all of the different contributions at General Electric. Uh, but the last time I saw you, uh, it was you invited me to something at Columbia University that seemed almost the opposite of technology. Um, it was about craftsmanship yeah. and going back in in time. Can you get an idea about what you're exploring with this and why this is interesting to you? Yeah, well, um, partly I'm just experimenting and testing and learning my way to what I want to do next. And so I um, found this center at Columbia. I signed on as a visiting scholar. But what I love about what they're doing is it's craftsmanship. They they went back to the 15th and 16th century and unearthed these old crafts recipes. And what's so fascinating is that's what informed the Enlightenment. So it was the artisans and the craftsmen who informed the the scientific method that led to the Enlightenment. So it actually is related to technology. And it, it, I love the mixture of the art the art and the science and I invited you because I know you do too. You yeah. you have your technology serves the manufacturing and the maker space. And there's just something really interesting about the combination of those two. So what with that day, it was trying to convene a bunch of thinkers to say, okay, what does it look like to go back to 15th century and, you know, make a mold out of bread? Um, that's what we were learning. Has it given you any idea? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, when, when everybody, and I don't think this is anything new, you know, industrial revolutions and machinery and bringing on a certain level of automation is something that technology has always looked at yeah. as being. But do you, did it give you any sense of where craftsmanship can play in an ever-increasingly automated world? 
Well, I think it's a reinforcement of some things I experienced in my days at GE. Um, early on, our, the team I worked with, we were trying to be the pattern, the ones who recognized the pattern, saw what's next and new. And it took us to the maker movement. I mean, again, it's not really new. It's as old as time, humans making things. But we were fascinated that right here in Brooklyn, there were people making solar panels and water purification in their garage in a maker space here. Um, and it was as good as some of the things we were making. And then it led us to go into our factories. And what shocked me were right there in front of us that no one had asked were tons of makers. Yes, they were making the most sophisticated equipment on earth. I remember one of the, um, one of the manufacturing team um, made like fan blades for a jet engine. And they are so sophisticated, the most sophisticated materials. But it started with a hand drawing and an X-Acto knife. Mm. And we met another person who used his tattooing skills to apply it to welding. Another man who brought in his rifle to figure out how to how to deflect a certain kind of metal. And it just was this awakening that I think within even the most sophisticated technologies, there's a craftsman, an artisan that wants to work with their hands. And so how do you combine the best of those? That's what's happening in manufacturing. Yeah, I love your positive view on this. I, I, I have I'm incredibly an optimist about how automation can actually free people to be more creative. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to be a lot of people's concern that that won't happen. It's interesting to hear that you saw it happening at General Electric, even which I think to many people's mind would, you know, the, the idea of corporate bureaucracy and fitting into a mold themselves, yeah. rather than creating a, a mold, yeah. <laughs> an actual physical mold. Um, I find that really interesting. Yeah, I, I share your your and the concerns that have been raised by a lot of people. I, I actually think we're at this interesting time. What what I love about those stories is people figured out a better way. They were entrepreneurial and they were able they knew the constraints. They knew what they had to do and not. And the they, people with that NG were that, entrepreneurial, the ones who were allowed yeah. to take their gun to work and figure out a tensile strength or yeah. something. Right. I mean. And people allowed them to do that. I do worry in the in the time of automation, of checklist efficiency, that some of that goes away. You don't allow those rooms. I think that was why things like Kaizen and even to a certain extent, there were parts of Six Sigma that allowed people to figure out a better way. It fell apart in my mind when it got too structured and too automated. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think that this is a responsibility that I have on a small level, but maybe entrepreneurs in general have or businesses um, have is to make sure that as we automate something, what that's doing is freeing the person that would be doing that to try to create something. Yeah. And that's super idealistic, uh, but we see it happen sometimes and we see it happen a lot, uh, but it's almost starting with this 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 mindset maybe and, uh, and not everybody has the mindset i think that's what i've tried to grapple with um yeah and not everybody's allowed to act on that mindset i i remember um i mean you and i got to work together in, in the context of advanced manufacturing quite a bit mm -hmm. and i remember at ge aviation i was so impressed with the this is the most structured regulated but high-tech industry yet very entrepreneurial as, as 3D printing and metals came around, this was the team that gravitated toward it, that experimented, that tried it. And so I just saw very powerfully, if you have a curious team, they make a space to figure these things out. But if you don't allow it, you get that kind of iterative path 
I think that leads to commoditization and, and just focuses on pro productivity over innovation. This seems strange question probably, but if, if I were to go back, you would know the exact numbers, but let's say 15 years, General Electric, one of is, you know, probably top five large companies. Sure. In, that, at um, that time period. Yeah. And now you look at big tech or what we would call big tech. I have this thought that General Electric is actually a technology company and that Facebook and Google are not technology companies. Why? Well, I, I think, I think that we're defining technology now in a way that are really services. So if I, if I think moving away from them, I think of Uber, for instance, as being a way to use an application as a taxi dispatcher, or what we're seeing with WeWork as being, you know, a way to sublease in a different way. So the, regardless of what people think and valuations of those companies, it's, it's using something that sort of rides over a foundational technology. Uh, you know, GE started with this idea of foundational. It was, a, it was a lighting grid. It was being, a, you know, all of the things that were, and, and then it was jet engines and it was LED lighting. And it was even media for a, a while that you, of course, were very instrumental in. But I don't, I don't know that uh, it's in the DNA of big tech right now to actually be able to create foundational technologies. I, why, why can you have hundreds of billions of dollars in cash and have something like what Google X is and not be able to produce something that is more foundationally? And yeah, that's such a good point. I, I, I share some of that. I mean, I think what I saw at G is it was a technology company. A couple of things. I mean, obviously, the, the arrival of the digital age and software the whole Mark Andreessen thought of what eight years ago, software mm -hmm. eats the world, and you know we came to realize you needed both physical and digital. But yeah, at its core, it was infrastructure technology. I mean, I think you could, I'd maybe argue Amazon Web Service now is an is a kind of core uh, technological backbone. You know that kind of cloud. I think service. that's right. I mean, you're you're using GPUs in a way that they haven't been used before to enable invention. Right. To me, that's that, the first thing I've seen that yeah. I might put in. Yeah, that, that makes that, sense. To that me. category, but it's a bit of a stretch. And um, I, 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 this is not to put down the use of Google. I mean, I use Google. We, not a single person in the world doesn't use yeah. Google. But and and these kind of de demarcations aren't necessarily important. But now you're you're going around and looking at a lot of startups and you're speaking to a lot of founders and how they how they consider innovation and where they look for examples, which sort of pays into your yeah. mentor uh, capacity, if can be a little bit discouraging to me. If you look at the amount of money that some of the big tech companies have and yet the lack of something graspable that you could build. Yeah. I, I mean, to that point, I would say we interacted a lot. I interacted, I've interacted a lot with Google and other team at Google X. I think, I think they found often the hardware, the, especially in the, I know it came to know them quite well in the energy space. It was hard to scale right. and they invested or took on things that had the right mission, but maybe didn't have the appreciation of sort of the, the physical details of scale. So I think that's a big issue that a lot of those companies have had to work through. And I think that also affects some of these startups that 
the models are all based on software or digital technology. And in the combined world of the digital and the physical, it's just the capital to get there is a lot more. And people are perhaps impatient. They don't want to have to invest in, in what it's going to take to go the distance. Patience is, is interesting. I've been trying to figure this out because I never have worked at a, a large company. And I come from this entrepreneurial family. So I've always been involved with small businesses, yet our customers are some of the largest companies in the yeah. world. Yeah, you keep going back to punish yourself in that, don't you, calling on yeah. these big customers? <laughs> well, <laughs> they, uh, it's, it, they're different types of challenges. Like I go with, I'm, I, I look at, I don't know if you, have you, do you know um, Jeffrey West's book, Scale? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I'm repeating this to you, but for anybody who doesn't know, I, I guess the, the basic idea has to do with life cycles. And, you know, fortunately, humans don't live so long. Businesses don't live so long. Right. Cities live a long time, yeah. you know. And GE lived, had, I, I said lived just because they're going through a bad time. Mm -hmm. I'm acting as if they're dead. And that's not the right yeah. way to look at it. No, I they're realize not, they're not dead, but they're, they're not, going through a, they're re not, they're, they're going through a rough, a, a rough times. And I, you have more informed theories about that, but I'm wondering that there, there is a sense of businesses can't live due to some kind of, um, entropy of bureaucracy of, of building upon things instead of pulling them back and looking at some type of entrepreneurial core. One thing that you always, or I've heard you say is for people to look at their jobs in as, uh, uh, crafting the way they describe their jobs. And, and you even earlier today were saying about this entrepreneurial spirit of an engineer that's, that's designing a part. Yeah. Uh, in the aviation group, uh, is that a solution, or that, or is it just a small enough voice in something so big that it that it's not movable and just subject to the Jeffrey West scaling law? Yeah, it's it's a little of both. I mean, it's it's complex. I mean, a company like GE, any big company, has been around 130 years. A lot of complexities, inertia of certain, but. I do think every, you know, you can look time and again, I saw in the LED business that there was a group of dedicated people who, while the managers were, you know, demanding efficiency and cost out, they like little squirrels, you know, scurried a little nest of nuts to seed the LED future. And thank goodness they did because when LEDs arrived, they had a solution. And I think you see that in many companies where you've got the sort of internal rebels. Now with that comes a lot of, um, collaboration, a lot of need to defy, you know, what people are expecting. I, I've always been a, a believer in you need a, a second lane in any company. You need your kind of core net what's now and you need your what's next and new lane. I, I could even argue you need oh, three, three lanes, uh -huh. but let's for the sake of simplification, say two lanes, your today and your tomorrow, however. But in any team I've been part of, we really fought to make sure we had, we didn't have to ask permission, just hopefully 15% of our time budget mind share for experimentation. And some years, maybe it was 8%, 5% in a really lean year. But you, you don't ask permission for that. You just do it because you know what your numbers are. You know what you have to do. And that's as important as some of the others. Now, I think it gets more complicated in public companies. So some of yeah. the inertia you're talking about, I think gets the short-termism gets baked in because of the public market. So I think that's another complication. 
I guess that goes to your role when you uh, your board responsibilities at at GE. Is it it? Can you explain to me the balance between quarterly earnings and being able to say I'm making I'm I'm taking a chance that might play out in a year or two years, but it's hard to report on such a thing. Yeah. And then how does that deal with management? Yeah, I mean it's a lot of tension and. Um... It takes a lot of energy to what I said earlier, but I think it's a fundamental belief that we need another, this other space and you have different metrics. I think that was a big learning for us, for myself personally, you need different metrics, different funding models, different people. And often it seems like the cool stuff in a company. So everybody's vying to get in there, but they aren't entrepreneurial. They haven't been trained at how to test things and fail the failure, you know, the throughput of bad ideas to get to the good ones. So in that kind of what's next in new lane, you're looking at things like how many ideas did you consider? How many did you test? What's the least amount of money you spent to get the most amount of learning? How, what, what, you know, what's it take to get to one customer now? What's the likelihood of getting to more customers? You can't measure profit yet in those in, in established companies, it's often like, well, what's the profitability? What's your path to profitability? I don't even know if I have a customer. Right. What do you mean I can't have my profitability? Right. You're, you're held to a very different standard yeah. at GE than at a tech company. You can, you're even a public tech company. You can say, you can look, you can push out profits five years and still have a huge yeah. bump in stock. At least founder-led public companies okay, seem founder -led to company have a bit company. more. I think there's a belief in the founder, they got them here. That's, I don't know if that's okay. true. That's been my experience. The, the founders led companies in Amazon and Google get a little bit more leeway there than, than some of the other companies that maybe the founders have gone away. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I don't know. I think we'd have to think about Apple. Is that true? I mean, I don't know. And I, I, there, there's kind of a, a sense that, um, growth is, is limitless yeah. that I, I kind of, don't know if if I share unless there's a new technology on the rise. And I mean, eventually yeah. there are only going to be so many cars or there's going to be so many that we're, you know, inventing new things, then it does become, you know, hu human invention and yeah. possibilities is kind of endless. But the, you know, num number of users of an uh, of Uber app is limited eventually. And so there's this thing and if it's not scaling along with profit it's it's a very it's a very strange way of thinking that you I, I can you even can you even try to instill that type of structure upon how you relate to the markets when you're in a company the size of old as old and the size of I think GA. you have to try I think that's yeah. the essence of good leadership is to say we're optimizing today we're building tomorrow and here I, I have the transparency, I have the metrics. I know as somebody who was in the innovation part of GE, there were very few investors who cared about what we were working on. It all seemed too small. And I take clean tech, Ugh, like just leave me alone. That really, until one day it wasn't. And everybody's like, why aren't you bigger in solar? When is battery technology going to happen? Um, but I think there are things that company, big companies do that that, you know, because they have a lot of money often, they throw too much money at something too early. They have to write things off as we did quite a bit in some of this new technology. I think as a- It's almost best when you do that. I mean, that, that's but, at your best but, moments, but right? Think of you. And I mean, you, you <laughs> oh, can't- Oh no, it's terrifying to throw you, away money. I, mean, you're, I don't you're, have enough to throw away. Your job, if you run out of cash, that, that's your job, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. To, to not run out of cash. That is the CEO's job. Yeah. 
And I mean, GE is an old school business in the sense that, you know, my grandfather was a a director at a vice president at a company. It wasn't as big as GE, but it was big tire company, BF Goodrich tire company. And, um, I, I, I remember sort of the idea of runway (laughs) isn't something that you thought of. You were looking at, you know, you know, by the, by the month, I mean, you have sort of these double, you know, low double digit gross profit for the whole company type of thing. When you have now big companies are sitting on amount of money, an amount of capital that they would not have any idea how to deploy. You know, six, over $600 billion at Apple. That's not the way that GE actually, at least I don't think ever no, worked. I mean, I think you could argue <laughs> like maybe cap- capital allocation, you know, was was challenging in some respects. But this GEI experience tried things, put their money to work in new spaces, whether it was right. clean tech or healthcare or digital. No, definitely, and I mean, that's what you have to do. That being said, you're not often rewarded for it. You're yeah. rarely rewarded for it, and so you kind of have to do it to you, you're trying to buy some goodwill with the investor, the investors, if you're publicly traded. Uh, or your founder and just says, hey, this is the way we do it. Uh, and most CEOs have a window to do that. So I think yeah. I think the most successful ones have figured out how to do that well. Yeah. So you've spent now since your time, probably well, even during your time, probably at Cheese, speaking with a lot of new companies. Yeah. Uh, what are some trends that you're noticing that you think, you know, in 10 years or five years, we'll start to see being you know, useful foundational. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll divide them in. I mean, just in a couple of buckets, I think just trends in terms of the startup companies I'm seeing. I mean, there's a lot of money out there. So people are, but it's still harder for women founders to get funded. They get a much tougher time held to a different standard. And it's shocking that that still happens for as much as attention. So I've been disappointed to continue to see that play out and not well. Um, so I think, you know, and, and obviously companies are getting funded. I mean, look at WeWork, no lack of funding for what they needed. You might've argued maybe too much funding, right? So, yeah. so I think, um, I think there still is a lot of good idea money for good ideas that feels good. So if you have a good idea, people are willing yeah. to fund you. Um, the areas I've been really intrigued about, and, um, I I'm really interested in agritech. I think we've already seen some of it in the plant-based foods that, that are just one example, but I think just Ag- the techno the tech digitization of agriculture i think is fascinating um i'm kind of intrigued about uh, on a consumer side something you mentioned that relates to what you said earlier i think many there's a segment of consumers that are questioning growth that are saying i don't need to take that trip i don't need to buy this you saw h&m uh, out of scandinavia recently say they were having a hard time growing because people didn't want to keep buying as many clothes now whether that's true or not Greta Thunberg and the whole um, sort of people questioning their travel and their carbon footprint. I I question whether some of the growth models in the consumer marketplace we have are sustainable. That's something I'm Are you seeing companies address that that will produce, that aren't, let's just say the clothing industry, um, that will have lower production and still have a good business model because of it. I, I think people are asking these questions. You've got these models like Rent the Runway and even IKEA now looking at more, you know, rental models of their furniture and different models. I mean, IKEA seems to be doing a really interesting job. Again, another Scandinavian-based country company 
Um, so I don't, I think it's still early in that, but I, I feel like simmering, you're starting to, and I think we're as a, we, we got to ask ourselves, what does this mean? We're all assuming yeah. every business, every economic model is on consumer growth. Well, what if it's not? Yeah. I, I've been thinking, it's funny you bring up this clothing argument. I've, I've been having this conversation the last few days, reading some of these re reports and, you know, we're talking to people that make smart, uh, fabrics so you have yeah. embedded computers in them so how can that you know how can that tell you something about where of the clothing so yeah. you're not replacing different times but the clothing maybe costs a bit more um or there's ways to use that information in ways that are yeah. useful um but you know in nanotronics we always focus on if you increase yields make things more efficiently you know make it in a way that there is less waste both from environmental energy waste and actual product waste you can get quite a long way, but I, there's, but not the whole way. There's so much still for people to think about. And yeah, this, and you, I mean, it's been a trend for a through. while. Experience people are, yeah. uh, you know, sort of prioritizing experiences over the thing. I mean, I think that continues. Um, so I, I, I think this future of work issue that you talked about is something that mm -hmm. I see startups trying to address as well. Um, one of the things I'm intrigued about it, and I don't know how we address this. It's not one of the things that took me to Columbia. This question I have is just the this the unleashing of creativity. Yes. Because back to where we started this conversation, as we automate more things, it liberates us all to be more creative. And there's this idea that we're all suddenly gonna like what, go to our basements and woodwork or needlepoint or something. Well, I don't think that's gonna happen, but we're gonna need to unleash a different kind of creativity at work to apply new to solve new problems in new ways. And so I'm intrigued about how that starts to enter into the entrepreneurial arena. Well, there are ways probably that, and you mentioned additive and 3D printing, yeah. that could be potentially be close to going into your basement with yeah. saws, yeah. you know, yeah. if you didn't actually, you know, doing a CAD drawing is not something everybody can do, you know, going and doing engineering drawing, but, you know, sketching something out and having it interpreted True. and then printed and tried. And if it doesn't work, maybe reusing that exact yeah. thing. Uh, there, there are ways that, you know, generally, I mean, I see it with my kids. There should be nothing different between my eight year old's creativity and being <laughs> middle-aged, um, my creativity, but he's more creative than I am most but of the you're time. You're a very creative person. Why do you say that? Because I've always wondered how you define creativity, given you're such a I don't know, Renaissance man. I don't know. What do we call you um, with all your various interests? To, um, like, to, I don't know if everyone knows. Like, what do you do? You're, you play your jazz musician. willing just to try right? the things that I but, love. So I think of you as a very creative I, I'm, I'm person. Kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a child. That's true. Uh, so, but, <laughs> uh, but, but why but, is that that your eight-year-old you feel is more creative than you and mm. you as a very creative person? Okay, well, I, I think that my guess is, is, is this, um, once we start to build a knowledge of the, of complications in the world, we think that invention is complicated and invention. I could mean playing piano because you've heard the best jazz musicians play piano or you, uh, or you've seen the best painters or you have, you know, seen that it, you know, a company that makes something, you know, has 150,000 employees. And so you go through these levels of intimidation throughout life. And you also go through a lot of education and you're told, well, I need this degree. And after this degree, when you're eight years old, 
There's nothing to stop you from grabbing a piece of paper and folding it and bending it and going ahead and putting a Lego with it and then having an invention that somebody else may have already invented and not being intimidated that somebody else has and building upon it and having something yeah. interesting come. And by the way, even if somebody else has invented something, it's still creative if you've come up with it. Yeah. I mean, my, my kid kind of explained what a generator yeah, was to me the, the other day. I love the way you described that, the joy of it. I mean, yeah. just the joy that sounds like is the eight-year-old mind. Yeah. I mean, when we... I, I mean, just introducing the idea of Hyperloop to my son has led down a path of hundreds of different kind of transportation designs. And he came up with kind of the idea of how a generator works by explaining magnets to me. And then you don't want to say, no, that's already been done. You say, wow, isn't that great yeah. that he's worked through this concept? I think that goes away as we become kind of intimidated that others have done it. Yeah. So I guess that's what... You know, it, it happens. Certainly, I try to break from that a lot because I was uh, lucky with people that I've been around and mentors um, that I've been around that have encouraged me to just close my eyes and try. And that's literal with piano and playing free jazz. Yeah. You actually just close your eyes and trust that your fingers will hit the right places because you've practiced enough and you've yeah. played enough that it will, and you will discover in the moment. And, you know, we have, we, we, you know, I try to take these chances, but I don't do it enough. I mean, certainly I don't do it as much as my eight year old, but it's something that you actually bring up quite a bit. Um, when I listen to stuff that you talk about is courage. And I, 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 that might be something different than what we're just talking about, but the courage to try something, whether it's within your job or just within your life yeah. in general, you speak to that a little yeah, bit. Well, I mean, I think the, the courage we talked, we touched on it, the courage to craft the job that you think is your opportunity. I mean, this struck me a lot working in organizations of um, people, there's always an excuse for why they couldn't go after an idea or try something new, not enough budget. The boss won't let me, you know, somebody tried that. Well, and many of those were true, but often when you'd say, well, did you ask your boss? Oh no, I could never do that. I, he or she will never go for it. It's that perceived rejection before it even happens. Yeah. So it's that, that courage to just try it. Okay. What does it harm? And we're not incented in organizations. You can come up with a lot of excuses, but at the end of the day, it's you. If you tried it and you got shot down, it's different than never trying it. And so I think that's some of that courage. But I also think I've come to really think a lot since I've been out of a company for the past now almost two years about creative courage. Yeah. And it was different for me in a company. It was really courage to kind of fight for change and fight for a path that seemed obvious when you looked at it, right? Clean tech, whatever. Now I'm finding it's a lot harder to be creative as an individual. It was somewhat easier to be creative in an organization because it was more of a rebellious act. And because it, you're putting yourself on the line that this is who you are well, kind of courage. You're, you're or, with a team in that case and yeah. you all believe you see. And, and what I've been trying to do is unlock my own, sort of go back to what it was like when I was eight years old. Yeah. And in fact, it's funny you mentioned that because for me, it's like I, I pick up my paintbrush from when I was 10 years old and I'm still painting things like I'm 10. Yeah. And it's very sad on one level. <laughs> but on the oh, other, it's, it's like, it, 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 it's it, but you have thing. to, and there's courage in that to just say, okay, that's what I'm doing right now. Cause oh, God, you touch on something so right? important that it, that is more courageous than being an executive that have 
billions of dollars behind your decisions is such an interesting way to look at humanity. Yeah, I don't know. It's but a, I think it's, I, I feel this way. Yeah, I mean, I feel I have come, I'm sort of trying to like sort of figure out, as I said, what's next, what am I doing? But through reevaluating my philosophy and one of my beliefs is that we have an obligation as people to create. And it can be very small. Some people, it's like you creating a company, uh, creating a team, but but what is, and you don't give up on that. And so just because I'm not creating things in a co company context, what am I creating? What is my active expression and creativity? And that's hard when you have these much older year perceptions in society and everybody telling you what's good. You got to go back to that eight-year-old that's holding up paper and going, look at the, look at it. And I don't know, my parents, like my dad encouraged me to take art. Yeah. My parents still have my art in their house. Yeah. It is not good, but they framed it. You would think it was like a Van Gogh yeah. right there. Um, to them, it is a Van Gogh. Well, it was at least your experience at the time that led to something else, yeah. even if you couldn't pinpoint it. Yeah. I mean, this was you. And so instead of ripping the paper up, maybe we all just do our best put it in a frame and go, that's my Van Gogh. Like, that's me. I'm good. But that takes a lot of courage. And, and I'm not there yet. I'm not, I have not done that. I'm, I'm on that path. I feel it. And what I feel is the more I unlock those nuggets in myself, it's going to bring me back to more creative ideas and more interesting intersections. And so to me, that's a form of renewal that I didn't quite expect to find. God, I love that so much that you're doing that, Beth. I've been thinking along the, the same lines when, when you, there are examples of people that are more creative and have done things later in life. Um, but most there's, there's a perception that most people make their great discoveries or do their best work when they're young. Yeah. And of course I'm fighting against it as I'm getting older as well. Well, there was a new survey well. saying you're, you're, you're what, start, two thirds is more likely to be successful. To start two two business, or three I, times more yeah. likely to be successful if you're over, if you're over 50. Yeah, I know. I, I, I love looking at that, right? I mean, these are the kind of things. <laughs> Published that, by the group of people, people over, over 50. 50. <laughs> <laughs> the AARP or something. But I wonder for you, because you've always been a poet, a musician, maybe you've always approached life in a more well-rounded way that many people like myself, I mean, I, I feel like I was able to be creative with my kids, but I often forsook, forsake, whatever, for, passes yeah. over my personal creativity for the sake of business creativity. Yeah. And that I might've been more well-balanced had I invested more in my own personal creativity. It's interesting that, yeah, I may have gone in the opposite path um, and it's something I'm not happy with myself about sometimes right now. I look back, I used to, when people started blogging and, and writing things online, I would, I would write whatever was on my mind and push publish. Now I'm, and of course, nanotronics is not general electric, but as we receive more funding, have more people working for, as I feel a responsibility in a different way, I'm, I, you know, I now... I'm really careful if I'm going to write something and put it out. And I won't, you know, it's funny. I mean, we have a president and we have people that tweet in the middle of the night and have, have no problem, with you that. know, millions and millions and seem to. So I guess it's not universal that you get. Yeah. More, well, but yeah, I, I, there, there is this thing that I, I kind of want to shock my neuron, you know, sort of get these you know, shock myself to be freer. And yeah. I do that with music, but as a organizational leader, 
I think I need to balance that a little bit, not be too just wildly free form experimental yeah. with the company, but also feel free to be yeah. myself in well, it. Well, I wonder, like, do you share, like, you're right. I mean, you can't just do jazz improv with your team every day. It'd be sort no. of chaos, especially with the, the technical feats you have to accomplish. But my guess is the more open you are as a leader in that you are well-rounded, that you like jazz or poetry or whatever, I think um, people like knowing more about you. That was one thing I had to learn in the course of my career was that when I was too packaged, when I was trying too hard to be the perfect whatever, people were like, you know, why do you have us around? And the more it was like, I don't know the answer. What do you think? So I, it's not quite maybe the creativity, but it's more the vulnerability and the openness to the other sides of you. I found that was yeah, liberating. It's a, good, it's a good idea. I need, you know, on one-on-one, I can, you know, completely vulnerable, but am I doing that in the organization? Well, I'm in a way not that doesn't, sure. you want to send everybody running yeah. out of the building. Like you can say, I don't know the future oh. of the company, but you, but you can say, I, you know, it's, leadership is about a vision, it's confidence in it, but it's also knowing, like, I don't know, like, we need to figure this out together. I don't know the answer here. Yeah. And I think there's a, that spurs a kind of creativity in your team. Um, I feel like the teams I worked with, I'm thinking of a couple of them in particular, I know we did some of our most creative work together. I'm very proud of it. I will forever be grateful that we worked that way together. And a lot of it was all of us feeling safe, that psychological safety yeah. of like, I don't know the answer being silly, being angry, upset and giving us space. Like we needed that. And if it at all, the ones that didn't work were the ones where it was just very formulaic. No, that that is great advice. And I talk about that more than I do it. Probably I need to be much, I, I talk about the, you know, teams being like a, a jazz band, but at what you know, how, how am I living that regularly? I, I think our R&D group does an amazing job, but not due to my leadership, yeah. due to our VP of R&D, who's the team. Is I don't know. I'd be interested it. in, but, like, I'm just riffing. I don't yeah. would ever do this, but it would be fun. Like, if you brought in your piano and you just... It's, I have it here. Do, okay. Yeah. You just had everybody here, like, how you how you pull together your music, like what's your, and then maybe you've done that and then mm. you could do the translation. Maybe it's just even a way for a, a different kind of meeting. Maybe just do it once or twice a year. I don't know, as yeah. a way to inspire. Because companies spend a lot of t- a lot of money to bring in improv teams, jazz pianists. That's to true. Do they this. save money. They just have me around. Yeah, exactly. It's maybe not as good, but at least it's free. <laughs> exactly. And they work for you, so they're not going to tell you if it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, I've, I've installed uh, cam- cameras and microphones to listen to them complain. No. Of course, I'm, they're, they're welcome to not think I'm any good. But no, I did bring you my piano. I actually inherited a piano from my mentor. Was, I, I was lucky that I had this family they were uh, one of them was a physicist that worked in the same field she was my high school music teacher wow. and they were my mentors and dear dear friends so it was a physicist and a pianist yeah two different people yeah they're married yeah wow and they were amazing i mean we traveled the world like together. both sides I of your loved. brain there although it's interesting how many math people i've met who also are really good musicians there's yeah. something about that commonality i know i know people ask about that all the time and i'm sure it's true and i i, I i've never seen any uh papers about why that is i've I, I, there's a futurist i know who i really respect Edie weiner and the groups the future hunters and she has some they do a lot of work on the future of work and one of her ideas is 
why aren't data companies and financial companies hiring more musicians to yes. do their data work? Because again, it would be a creative, a different way of thinking about um, structure and solving some of these problems. I love that people who study that and can think, okay, this is a new way. So maybe, maybe I'd love you to should... look into her work, yeah, by the way, I, because I will... this is, we're, we're trying to figure out ways to write job descriptions differently yeah. and look to uh, different populations that aren't the obvious for a role. Right. You know, we shouldn't always just go to Columbia and MIT and these places to get people that fit the specific role. What about the creative people or the other areas? And, um, we're kind of, you know, we're trying to figure this out on our own. So any, yeah. any help that we get from others, whether it's you or yeah. if you know this work that she's done, yeah. I, I would I love mean, to read more. About I, I like what you said also about figure it out. One of the things I gravitated toward uh, more in that model of, I, I think sort of the notion of management is dead. We don't manage people. We inspire them. We help them. But one of the jobs that I found success in creating was a figure it out role. And it was um, hiring, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of people, but a couple of people who, like I remember one in one case, hiring somebody who came out of doing um, energy financing in, uh, in Africa to figure out the future of blockchain in our company. And, you know, you, you sort of go through, they, they had the kind of skills to figure out in really tough places. They know how to do financial modeling, like just turn this person loose and see what happens. And so more and more, I just thought like there ought to be these ways, maybe it's even project work for you, right. where you have a couple of projects and you're hiring people from diverse backgrounds to just see how they do it on a project basis. And that might be an entry into the company. That's great. A lot of, I, I, since I've been out doing my book, I've heard from a lot of women who maybe they, they went to stop to working uh, day daily in, in the workplace and worked at home as they had their kids and they're looking to re-enter and they're looking for people who are looking for non-conventional backgrounds. So I think you'd be surprised at the pockets of people. If you could give them some project work and have them figure it out, they might come to you in a different way. Yeah. And one thing that we've been, it, it actually came to me when we had a meeting of our summer interns at the end of the summer. And I spoke to them and asked, how was your experience? And their managers were there. How was your experience? And um, there's a, it was really good. I said, well, but what happened? We didn't do anything that we thought we would be doing. I love that. And, then, and I asked the managers, I said, you know, one of them had a PhD in opti uh, optical engineering. One of them had I said, are you guys, what are you doing that when you came on the, none of them were doing things at the company that they thought they would be doing that just happened. And it, it, it's really cool because the, the people in the company that are doing these different jobs, they found something that is really of interest yeah. to them and good for the company. They crafted but it their was, own job. They I think did that. right. And when I heard you say that, I thought, ah, that's what they did. But we've not institutionalized that. Yeah. And whether nanotronics or anybody else, I think it's you. you I, I think you're starting to actually put some structure into how this can be done. But it, it's a it's a feeder. It's a pipeline feed. Your interns. I mean, uh, what I am hearing and talking to different professors and even high school teachers is that there are a lot of kids that are waiting to be told what to do. They're afraid of not being perfect. They're afraid of failing. And so to create that, it's almost like a test bed. I mean, one, people in school are able to come here and be, do an internship and say, wow, like this exists in the world. I'm encouraged. I want to go work there. And for you, it's a way to filter the people who are more industrious, more figure it outness. Um, and yeah. over time you might start to recognize some patterns of where they come from, what they're back, you know, what kind of characteristics they, I don't mean like they grew up in a certain part of the country, but more like 
What's their intellectual capacity? Oh, that is interesting too, though. Yeah. I've, I've noticed well, where they came from. Yeah. yeah. Where they come from uh, is actually, and I, I didn't think, and actually I'm, I'm pivoting here to yeah. something else, but you know, you worked in, you, you've traveled and worked in different countries and different places, you know, but both of us spend our time all over the world where right now things are kind of nationalistic. Yeah. I'm not only mean just in the United States, it seems to be everywhere in, in a way. Um, it, does this go, is, is this dangerous in the sense of not being able to take uh, in, into account where we can move? And I'm not even physically move, although that could be something, but where we can creatively move. Do you see that connection I, at all? I, I think it is something to, to worry about. Yeah. I mean, because you're putting more and more constraints. I mean, I know from GE, I think our company got more open, more inventive, just better able to deal with the future as it got more global. Yeah. You had more brains, more people, and you had to get over that. It used to be you'd send the American into China and tell everybody what to do. And over time, it was like, no, like, let's have the Chinese tell us what to do in the market. So you have to give up some of that control. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's a bit of a threat and that, you know, these sorts of people are more capable than those, or this is the way we do it. And you start building walls. I worry about Silicon Valley for that. I, I was going to say, I think they are a class A example of every, if you weren't from the Valley, if you weren't part of that ecosystem, you, they weren't going to hire you and look at what's happened to us. Many of these companies. Do you see that change in the Silicon Valley? mindset. I hope so. I, I mean, it's not changing I, I, anytime so soon, but I, yeah, hopefully it's got, I think they know that it has to change. And what have we also seen in the meantime? And I think this is helped by people like Steve Case with, you know, Rise of the Rest, but you're seeing a lot of great startups and new business leaders in Akron, Ohio, Cincinnati, Austin, Chattanooga. So now you can be in uh, these other cities. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley now to start your company. Yeah, I and mean, then we're we're not in Silicon Valley, um, although we have a presence there. I I uh, we're still, I guess we're still funded heavily from Silicon well, yeah. Valley. I mean that still but is. I it's changing a bit more in those smaller cities, but it's it's slower. It's harder. Though. It I, I we were opening this a new facility, and we kind of went out to a lot of different cities and states to get incentives, and it's still harder than I wish it were. Yeah. I mean, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Akron, Ohio. There are good universities in those areas, and but it's, it's still a, a struggle and it's going to, and I, I don't, I, but I think it is trending in the right direction yeah. for New sure. Orleans, something and I, I mean, you, where you've seen government doing yeah. a little bit more, but you're yeah. right. It takes time. It does take time. Yeah. Um, I, I often think about this idea of, you know, we were talking about a musician doing something in a company and that being useful. And, you know, I know you're very, very interested in design mm -hmm. and all, all of the, these things that seem to maybe not be directly related to today's job. You know, when I come into work today, I may be speaking to an investor, a customer, something like this. If I, if I look, if I take a step back in your career a little bit, you worked, you know, you handled the you had handled bringing hulu into the group right you worked in at nbc you ran this division and then you ended up running lighting as well in a company of that size or in your specific experience was there any lessons in crosstalk between technology and one area that influenced the other 
Well, I think what the theme that I saw in the course, I mean, I started out to be a reporter, ended up behind the scenes as a communicator, then marketer. So I didn't come into this as a technologist. I had to, I, I think this, for me, I always looked at this as what's the impact of technology. As a marketer, I'm a behaviorist. As a biologist, I'm a behaviorist. Mm -hmm. um, I study biology. Yeah. Um, so that was how I looked at what is the impact of this technology on behavior. And so I think that was a thread I pulled through. That was my way of navigating. And yet the disruptive nature. I mean, my last job at NBC was dealing with the disruption of, oh my, a ga we were aghast, YouTube, cats playing the piano on video. Oh my God. Ha ha ha. Isn't that so silly? And the other hand, like, oh, I'm panicked. We don't know how to do this. So in the course of most of my career, I think there's been a back, a backdrop of of technology. I mean, I remember when I first was wanting to be a reporter and I first got to NBC, not as a reporter, but as a, as a publicist, the big fear was, what if we go out, you know, we're going to lose camera crews. What if we go from a three per three man, it usually was men, three man crew to now they're expecting one person to do it all to now we're on a phone. I mean, what it's enabled. So I think that all technology has been the backdrop of pretty much everything I've seen, but I've looked for what's the impact on how we behave as the yeah. differentiator. And what I've noticed in things that you've said is that, and please correct me that I'm wrong here, but you, that you had had, you focused on story and kind of what, what content and story and sort of a driving narrative. Yeah. Um, if you're watching a new uh, news start to finish. If you're watching a TV show, you're watching Seinfeld, you're doing all of these things start to finish. It's, it's a clear narrative. Um, a narrative within the creation or the journey to build LEDs or to build jet engines. Uh, was that transferable at all for you? Yeah, I see where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it, was, I, it was clumsy. No, I, it wasn't clumsy. I get it. Yeah. I, um, and I do think you're right. I mean, the, to me, it was this awareness as also somebody who values story. I mean, I'm a storyteller and I just came to realize that story is the strategy. And if you're leading in change, you're leading to what's next, you have to tell a story about where it's going. And think about anyone who, a customer who's coming to Nanotronics to somebody who's investing in one of the, or buying one of the technologies here at New Lab. Why? Where are you going into the future? Where have you been? Where are you going? Why is it relevant to me? Why do I want to work with you? Those are the things that we often forget in change that you need to have a story. And I used to always find as I got more involved in business strategy that often the, the teams that were like, okay, here's our product, <clears throat> excuse me, here's our product. Now go get a story. We got to launch it. Didn't do as well as the ones who actually started with what's our story. What are we trying to accomplish in the world? What's, what's the mission, the vision. And those have become a bit Marginal commoditized a bit in companies, but they're still really important. And the reason they're commoditized is everybody tries to make it so unique. Like we want to save the world. Okay. Well, no. What is it uniquely that nanotronics is doing to save the world? Yeah. Why is GE uniquely qualified to be a clean tech company? And so that was a lot of, and, and I found it hard because in an engineering technology company, whether it was media, which was a storytelling company and technology company, like, well, you're just a storyteller. What do you, what do you know? You know, I'd be like, yeah, but if you don't have a good story, who's going to come with you to create this? And so I feel like story is everything. Yeah. No, you, you, I, I, you really are a great inspiration for that. 
Well, I used to find in, when, when you have teams doing business development or, you know, I'd often say, write it as a story, write it as a press release. Like, what's the story here? What, often in teams, when you have ideation sessions, ask somebody, okay, we've come up with these great ideas. Now, your job for the next meeting is to come back and tell it as a story. So we see if we still like the idea as much. Are we still willing to follow that? Um, and so I think there's some disciplined ways you can use story to test your strategy. With your own process, whether it's this, you know, your, your roles within GE or on the board of Nike, or, or if it's just this new personal discovery of your own creativity and what you're doing, how, how structured are you with this? Do you, do you have an end goal in mind or are you very, or, or is it more of a free form discovering as you go process? It's a little of both. I mean, I think um, I've always been big on pattern recognition. So my sort of my go-to is just discovery, get out in the world, put yourself out there and you start to see patterns and you see trends that gives you a direction. Is it relevant to me? And so you have a bit of a hypothesis of what you're working toward. And then I think this just room for experimentation. So that's what I'm doing right now. That's what I did in a company often without asking just because I knew we needed to create it. And, and sometimes you got accused of being a dabbler in companies. I feel that way in my personal life now. Some of the stuff I'm futzing around with, it's like, really, I'm spending my time on this. But then it's like, yeah, but remember, there's this trend you see. And like right now, one of my themes is just new models of learning. Mm -hmm. I've been out experimenting with all kinds of learning, traditional academia, online groups. I'm starting to see some things without experimenting in those, without some of the things I've done that on the surface would seem like a waste of time. I wouldn't have a feeling like there's something here I want to investigate more. Do you feel that kind of freedom now that you're, you can just investigate, you know, and maybe it's watching a movie and seeing what it is rather than structure. And then, you know, but I think back to earlier, I tried to always do that in the context of work mm -hmm. to always make room for discovery. That was my go-to move uh, because without I, feeling guilty no, that you're not being the, productive at the that company, moment. There were too many people in our company doing that. There yeah. weren't enough going to see what's happening yeah. out there. So it was an easy path for me because it wasn't a heavily trodden path as a parent, as a wife. I mean, you know, you get family obligations. Those things become harder. I remember doing a lot of arts and crafts with my kids and love that. And it was easy to justify, but I liked it just as much as they did. And if I'm really honest, I mostly probably yes. was doing as much for me as them. So, but then responsibilities get in the way and you can't do that. You got to make dinner. You got to do this. You, so I, I think life takes over in those things. And I'm at a different stage in my life now. My kids are grown. I'm, I'm, I'm forcing myself to take this time. And maybe I could have forced myself earlier. Maybe those that I just said were alibis. Maybe I could have forced myself earlier and I didn't. And I'm not sure of that yet, but that may be the, the truth of it. I'm so excited to see what comes of this, Beth. What and it may be nothing. It may just be something for me. And that's the other thing I had to get have to get comfortable with. Well, it will be something. Yeah. And it's very hard for people to judge right now whether your work is valuable 200 years from now. Yeah. But my God, how exciting that you're exploring this. Yeah. It is risky. It, it is, is risky. It is Personally. And, and it's hard to say why, but yeah. it is. Yeah. It touches and, something very. And, and one of the things I've been trying to do is intentionally put myself in situations where I'm a beginner, where I don't know. So for example, yeah. I'm taking a poetry class. Okay. Like 
I've now written four poems in my whole life in the past two months. I'm a dope at poetry. I, my husband and daughter, big poetry fans, not me. I am now, but I don't know what I'm doing. It's humiliating. And you, I say to myself sometimes, why am I doing this? I'm so humiliated. At the same time, I'm so turned on because I'm learning a new creative outlet. And so, there, I, you know, like how many times in my work life I would constantly have to reboot myself, ask for new responsibilities, go into a new area, because I think that's my pattern. I want to go into these things and learn. Yeah. And so I know that about myself. Maybe I don't have to always humiliate myself with bad poetry, but there's a part of that process that's taking yourself back to being uncomfortable, to opening up, to not always knowing the answer. That works for me. Thanks so much for coming here, Beth. Thanks, Matthew. So good to talk to you. It's so good to talk to you. Excited about the next time. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.